Coming up this week on Sporting Journal Radio, we're going to bring back the barrow trauma. The swim bladder inflation is, is but one of many uh, things that's happening to that fish. This is one of the best ice fishing years they have had. That's the real challenge with catch and release, getting controls. One of the things I like about these conversations is it emphasizes the importance of the angling community, scientists, and fisheries managers working in, in collaboratively. fish, I hunt, and always will. Broadcasting from the Alclair Outdoor Studios. Presented by OnX. Know where you stand with OnX. We're not just a radio show anymore. This is Sporting Journal Radio. That's right. Welcome to the show. My name is Brett Amundsen. Thank you for watching this on YouTube or maybe you're listening to this on the radio network or subscribing wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Thank you. Thank you very much. Dan Amundsen's over there. What's up, Dan? Hey. David Eckhart's over there. What's up, David? Hello, hello. What are you guys doing? You, David. Not much. You, what is that? Does that say you, David? You. You. Oh, you, David. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. That's a good one. That sounds like it. You laughed really hard. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We got a lot to get to. In fact, we're going we're gonna to bring back the barrow trauma. We're so desperate for it. We just couldn't resist. We took one week off. We just, we twitched a little bit. That's right. So it's an important topic. And uh, regardless of who you're getting your barrel trauma information from, some people are out there with certain thoughts and perceptions of it. And we're just trying to go straight to the biologists, the people that have been studying this stuff uh, for a long, long time. So um, obviously we filmed the DNR research and then Scott Mockentune suggested uh, another name. And we're going to have Stephen Cook on the show this week. He's been involved in fishery research and fish biology for a number of years. He's actually at, I got to look this up again here because he's, uh, he's at Carleton University in Ottawa. This is what the description is. Our lab uses ecological, physiological, and behavioral tools and concepts to address questions related to how aquatic animals interact with each other and their environment. We are particularly interested in how human activities influence aquatic animals with a focus on solutions. Nearly all of our work is focused on wild animals in the field, so we we rely on the conservation physiology toolbox to characterize stress. We attempt to scale from individuals to populations. So uh, they're they're really interested in fishing and how humans fish and uh, how our fishing methods affect fish and barrow trauma would be a big part of that so follow the science we're gonna have more with steven coming up a little bit later so it's someone completely outside the discussion that we've all been a part of and uh, have been weighing in on here for the last whatever couple of months or whatever it's been it's been an interesting discussion about barrow trauma have you learned anything dan Oh, absolutely. I have. It's been uh, it's been interesting. What we saw uh, a couple weeks ago was pretty interesting. I've had some discussions with people about that. And unfortunately, I feel like there's still a there's a lot of bias out there just based on how this has all gone down. And it's really unfortunate because like everybody in this, I don't even want to call it an argument because I don't think it's an argument. Right. Um, everyone just wants the best thing. And, and unfortunately, there's there's uh, seems to be some form of divide, especially when you introduce a government agency. People sure. automatically throw their guards up. And I get that. But uh, it's been interesting to, to get a firsthand look at a lot of this stuff and see that some concerns people might have had and might not be as big of a concern. And I'm not going to dig into it too much. There's still data to be compiled and there's more studies to be done. So we don't have hard facts and information for you yet. We have, 
you know, I, I, I know what I'm going to do if I'm fishing deep. It's kind of like what we talked about in the last fish hunt forever video. If I'm fishing, you know, I don't have a hard, hard depth for it, but if I'm fishing in a depth where I feel like there might be barrel trauma, which is probably when you start getting into that mid there are a lot of barrel trauma. And again, this is, I'm not trying to make a declaration that this is the number that everyone should hear by. Right. Um, but I feel like it's kind of, you start getting into those mid thirties and into the forties, fifties, sixties. If I'm fishing that deep, I'm just going to keep my fish and, if I, you know, either stop when I have what I want to keep or stop when I have a limit. And we did that with some perch. We didn't catch limits, but we caught and kept a number of fish for a few meals. It was my first time on the ice and it was fun. Uh, it was a cool midday opportunity to catch fish. And, and now I've got fish to eat for a couple of days. Yeah, which is good because we needed a, a few, some meat in yeah. the freezer. So no, that was awesome. And I know somebody commented too on, uh, when we were out filming with the DNR about the crappie barrow trauma and we were fishing deep and if it was a little deeper than we were expecting it to be that day. But if you're doing research like that, you know, if people are going to find crappies that deep, people are going to fish for them that deep. So why not do some research on those fish? And uh, the comment, I, I think it came from Clayton Schick, like, well, you guys are just killing crappies in the name of science. And it's like, well, that's how, first of all, how a lot of research works, but we were all out there fishing and we were keeping all, all, all the fish that were in pens. Anyway, we killed some, actually the ones that, that died, that didn't get eaten were ones that were done like Aaron Weeb's study. All the ones that were in the control pens were collected and taken home. Yep. Like, like we took we home, them. everybody took home fish to eat. So none of those fish were wasted. That was essentially a private lake. It's not private, but there's no public access on it. All the residents around the lake, as far as we're concerned, as far as we knew, were aware of this and invited us out there um, uh, and, and wanted the DNR to come study the fish on the lake there. So they were invited to go there. So there were, and there was a lot of crappies in that lake and some good ones. So yeah, there was, wasn't really any damage done to that lake. And, no. and, you know, there's nothing wrong with getting data from a wide variety of depths. You yeah. know, it's maybe people fishing that deep isn't like, that's not a common thing across every lake in every region, but it happens. It's a thing in the great lakes. It's a thing. Remember when the bass elites went to the Missouri river, it seems like every time they go out there, there's people catching smallmouth, suspended smallmouth out of 70 feet of water. And I specifically remember the one picture. I think it was Lee Livesey caught a walleye. It was like a 13 pound walleye out of 70 foot or, you know, 40 feet down, whatever it was, it was suspended. Just this tank walleye that was just dead eyes bulging out, bulging out. And so, yeah, there's people fishing deep. So what's wrong with getting that data? And, yeah. you know, it's I talked to somebody about it the other day, too, that they're like, well, once he's added another depth, it like completely skews the arguments. Like, well, it's this one study that was done last couple weeks ago was not meant to prove anybody wrong in any argument. It's just to add on to the data that we have and trying to figure some things out what's happening at 60 feet what's happening at 40 feet what's happening at 30 feet you know you, you can't just go out and say in 40 and do everything in 40 feet you're figure out what happens at 40 foot at that point but we're trying to they're they're trying to figure out what's happening at each depth range so there's really nothing wrong with that and there was a lot of fish caught out of like mid 40s honestly i think and most 30s. fish most fish on that study were caught in the 40 foot range um just people had to hang on to that one number and that when we talked about it a couple of weeks ago and that's funny how that works when yeah. you're looking for something to poke a hole in because there's a little bit of a bias yeah i thought the most interesting part about that was when you had the rov down you could just see people walking around yeah, yeah. Like you wouldn't think that they'd be able to see you i suppose it depends on water clarity too but yeah 
No wonder fish get spooky. Right? I don't think that water was all that clear, really. Well, it was clearish. You know, I wouldn't but, say it was stained water. Yeah. It's probably not zebra mussel water, but it's northern, north central Minnesota water. It's going to be fairly clear. But we were deep and there was snow and a foot of ice. Yeah. You know, like that's what blew my mind is that you could still see that much with and, how far down all that was. And six inches of snow. Right. You know, so 30 feet of water, at least at one point, I think he was down. Well, he's down on the bottom and nearly 50 feet of water, I think. But yeah, he pointed up with, yeah, 30, 40, 50 feet of water, foot of ice and six inches of snow. And you could see people walking around like it was behind a, um, like a curtain that has a light or a sun shining on it or Backlit, something like a shadow. Yeah. yeah. Shadow puppets. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, so pretty interesting stuff. We'll have that more of that coming out on a Prairie Sportsman episode coming out later this season. Another new episode coming up this Sunday night too at 7.30 p.m. on Pioneer PBS or on the Prairie Sportsman YouTube channel. Go there now and subscribe. Uh, we got to talk about some sponsors, Dan. You bet. Including our new official truck sponsor of Sporting Journal Radio and Fish Hunt Forever. Dan, take it away. Yeah, we've got Invergrove Toyota. The official truck sponsor of Fish Hunt Forever is Invergrove Toyota. When looking for your new rig, head over to Invergrove Toyota. The Minnesota Deer and Turkey Classic is March 8th, 9th, and 10th at Canterbury Park in Shakopee. Learn more at mndeerclassic.com. Haybell Heights Campground and Resort. Fish out of a snow bear on Devil's Lake. Learn more at haybellheights.com. Onyx Hunt. Landowner information, public land access, and much, much more. Know where you stand with Onyx Hunt. Prairie Sportsman, the new season is underway. Watch episodes anytime at the Prairie Sportsman YouTube channel. Lake of the Woods Tourism. Lake of the Woods is the walleye capital of the world. Plan a trip for this winter, spring, or summer at lakeofthewoodsmn.com. And the Midwest Wild Sheep Foundation Annual Banquet and Fundraiser is March 15th and 16th at the Minneapolis, Marriott, Southwest, and Minnetonka. Learn more at midwestwildsheep.com. Take a breath. We made that way longer. (laughs) Thanks, sponsors. I want to take a moment and say thanks to our sponsors. We really appreciate you. And I'm not just saying that. We really do because without them we wouldn't have this show or this job and i'm very thankful to have this job so thank yeah. thank you sponsors and thank you brett <laughs> You're welcome. of course and now thank you Invergro toyota you just wanted to watch well that. I, I just software problems <laughs> yeah we're uh we really are thankful for Invergrove toyota for for coming on board as our official truck sponsor i love this uh, tundra that i'm driving right now and i'm real jealous i tried to trade it in already you guys, I talked about this truck last week on the show, but if you missed it, I don't even know if it might, it might, it might, it might've sold by now. Um, but if it hasn't, here's a black Tundra that was on their showroom floor when I was there, I guess it's a couple weeks ago now, so it might be gone, but, um, they are excited about selling these Tundras here in Minnesota. There isn't another one like that in the state of Minnesota. That's the only one like it, that one right there that we showed that may be sold by now. But go in there, give them a call, see what they got for Tundras. Uh, you won't be disappointed. I love driving that truck. I know Wade, Yeah, your dad drove when, when I was in Chicago. He's like, I had to take it for a little test drive. <laughs> and he drove it, drove it around and parked it in the Cabela's parking lot and just sat in it just to see how people would react. And then he, he's texting me, and I, which was really funny about it. He didn't tell me he was going to do that. But I got a notice on my phone, like, oh, my doors are unlocked. <laughs> what you doing, Wade? And then, uh, yeah, then he drove, he texted me. He's like, this thing is, like, the word smooth came up in the conversation a number of times. And it is just, like, the suspension on it, the seats are comfortable. Everything about it is just a smooth, smooth ride. Uh, and it's got a bunch of bells and whistles. And again, my favorite, the seat coolers. 
love those things. So uh, check it out, Invergrove Toyota. You can find them online as well or stop in right off of 494 Robert Street in Invergrove Heights, Minnesota. Tell them you heard about us talking right here. Raising Cane's too. Oh, yeah. There's incentives. Swing by the old Toyota dealership and then go get some Raising Cane's. There's a Chick-fil-A there. That's a special thing for us who live out in the rocks and cows country of Minnesota. <laughs> yeah, we don't get that stuff out here. No. Uh, if you go in there and tell me you heard about the, the the Toyota Tundras at Invergrove from us, they'll give you a, they'll give you a discount. So I believe the code is going to be FHF. So uh, go in there and give them a call and uh, check it out. Uh, David, you had a chance to ride up uh, to Lake of the Woods with me in that truck this week. Yeah. We were up at River Bend. It's a good time. You're welcome for yeah, that ride. Thank you. <laughs> Very smooth. You're welcome. Very smooth. That's right. <laughs> we'll have more about our trip to Lake of the Woods coming up later here on this show, next week here on this show, and on the Fish Hunt Forever YouTube channel. Uh, if you haven't subscribed to that yet, do that. And if you want to get updates from us, we have a new website, fishhuntforever.com, and everything that we do, because people, we do a lot of stuff. We're on Prairie Sportsman, Sporting Journal Radio. We have Fish Hunt Forever. We have Taz and Lake and Taz and TV. We do a lot of different things. And people are like, man, I can't keep them straight. You got four YouTube channels, you got this and that. Well, we funneled them all through fishhuntforever.com. So if you ever want to just see what we've been up to, go to that website, check it out, and then you can subscribe with your email address. And anytime we put up new stuff, we just email it to you. And then you've got it, and uh, you can just uh, watch it over and over again and share it with your friends and hit smash that like button because it's the most amazing content you've ever seen, right? No way! <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. So check it out at fishhuntforever.com. Um, we, how much time have we got, Dan? We got a little bit of time? I think we've got however much time we want. All right. Because, yeah. <laughs> Anyways. It's show season. Um, I'm going to go on down to the uh, Pheasant Fest this year, guys. Are you? I am. Is that right? Is that right? No kidding. Sioux Falls. That's going to be a good time. Thanks on, for the invite. We have to plug this OnX uh, party. Let me pull it up here real quick. So once again, OnX, Ben Bredigan sent me this message like, hey, can you talk about this, please? Trample by Turtles is going to be down there, too, mm -hmm. by the way. Mm -hmm. So maybe I'll just swing down for old TBT and swing by the show. Swing by the show, too, if I get around to it. But Trample by Turtles puts on a great show. Have you ever seen them live? I don't, I don't expect David, you have Brett, maybe you're a music guy. Yeah, I haven't seen them live, but I used to play them all the time when I did a music show in yeah. Fargo. I used to play them on the radio all the time. They do a great live show. I've seen them. They're mm -hmm. fun. Like, I, I didn't expect, I, I liked their music, but I wasn't sure how I was going to feel about them in person. But they put on, they, they rock a little bit. It was fun. We should get Dave Simonette on the show. We should take him pheasanting. That, absolutely. Actually, I messaged him to get him on the show and actually film a Prairie Sportsman about it. We should he, do he that. Was, he was all for it. So, All right. Well, Dave, if you listen, let's go pheasant right. this year. Uh, so uh, Onyx gave away some tickets to um, to Trampled by Turtles, by the way. Uh, and then Onyx also has their party. It's offline at Pheasant Fest. It'll be Friday, March 1st at 9 p.m. at Ramcota's Grand Rushmore Hall. Live music from the Damn Jammers. And the chance to win some great Upland prizes with public access pull tabs. There's going to be some free line and kugels. Ooh. can also learn about the new PATH program in South Dakota. South Dakota's new public access to habitat program that's fundamentally changing how we look at private land. So uh, there you go. Check it out at Pheasant Fest with OnX coming up March 1st. Friday, March 1st at Ramcota's Grand Rushmore Hall at 9 p.m. We All could right. even swing through there. Maybe we'll bring the boat and I'll swing over to the river quick, fish, and then swing back, hit TBT, the on X party, and 
get on out of let's there. do it i'll be there you should stop by I might. It's I might just have to absolutely I'll put it on the calendar so then the next weekend i'll be at shakopee for the minnesota deer classic this year david are you going to come down this year i might it's uh march 8th 9th and 10th at canterbury park in shakopee i know melissa bachman's going to be there pat nicole reeve also barry wenzel i uh, can get your antlers scored and i'll be there i think i'm going to be there on saturday I can't remember the time now, but I think Saturday afternoon, probably midday, I'll be at the outdoor news booth for a couple of hours. So stop by and see me. And then they wanted me at the um, that awful watching program. They're going to have a booth there, which we're filming that for Prairie Sportsman, which is kind of a neat story. Uh, so, by the way, I've had in the last night I got a deer on camera still a carcass. I had a hawk, a crow, a skunk, a raccoon, deer and a mink all on within the span of a couple of hours <laughs> checking wow. out the deer carcass. <laughs> so we'll have all that footage coming up on an episode of Prairie Sportsman, which was, uh, I thought I thought that was kind of cool. It is. You know, and the best part about that, that it was a buck that got hit. I got a sight tag for it and I put it out there and then everything froze. And uh, they were like, well, if it's, you know, if it's frozen, you might not get anything on it. <laughs> well, then it warmed up <laughs> and I poked a couple holes in it. And uh, I'm surprised, though. It's been out there for a long time. The coyotes haven't been on it yet. Hmm. It's taken a while. Interesting. Yeah. It's taken a while for some of the other stuff that we've had out for coyotes to hit, though. And there's been coyotes all over the place. So I don't know if the skunk, like they got in a fight with the skunk on one of the other deer carcasses I had. So it's funny that a skunk would win that battle. But it's not. Have you ever smelled a skunk? I have. (laughs) Or they're just finding enough other food. That could be. To where they're not desperate. Yeah. It's like. It's like April out there right now. Yeah. This is crazy. crazy. Snow goose season's open. Oh, yeah. We should probably mention that. Well, we're, we're probably going to run out of time here pretty quick, but <laughs> um, we might be snow goose hunting. Okay, here, how about this, David? We're going to go to Sioux Falls. We'll bring the boat. We'll catch walleye. And then we're going to snow goose hunt. Then we're going to go to Trample Bay Turtles <laughs> and Pheasant Fest. I like it. And the Onyx Party. Busy weekend. All wearing our, our whites, muddy and yeah. tired and hopped up on caffeine and have a beer. <laughs> Sleep deprived. Hell yeah. Well, and real quick, I'll just mention the last couple of shows because I'm going to be at the Northwest Sports Show Minneapolis at the Tazan Lake Lodge booth. That's at the Convention Center. Uh, that's March 14th through the 17th. And then uh, I believe at the same the same weekend, yeah, the uh, Wild Sheep Foundation Midwest Chapter will have their fundraiser and banquet at the Minneapolis Marriott. That's March 15th and 16th in Minnetonka. MidwestWildSheep.com has all the information. I think Hunt and Fool is going to be there. Uh, they've got some statewide youth turkey tags in South Dakota. Two of those, they're going to be given away. So I, don't, I think it's just a contest. I don't think they're going to do an auction. They can't based on how it works. I think it's just going to be uh, given away. They've got a North Dakota State Bighorn Sheep License, a South Dakota State Bighorn Sheep License, Wyoming, uh, all on the the auction this year. So some really cool stuff. It's a it's a really good time over there. So check them out. The Midwest Chapter of the Wild Sheep Foundation Banquet and Fundraiser, March 15th and 16th. All right. Stephen Cook is on the way. He's going to talk barrow trauma. And Joe Henry will talk Lake of the Woods in the extended walleye season. All on the way. 852 million acres of public land. 147 million private properties. All in the palm of your hand. The number one hunting GPS app just got better. With hundreds of custom map layers, 3D and topographic maps, you can easily scout on the road or at home before you go. And now you can get important weather details, CWD detection, and even know what crops have been planted where. Get the most trusted hunting GPS app ever made. Onyx. Know where you stand with Onyx. 
Don't miss the 2024 Minnesota Deer and Turkey Classic presented by select Heartland Chevy dealers at Canterbury Park in Shakopee March 8th, 9th, and 10th. This year's Classic features top hunting celebrities like Pat Nicole Reeve of Driven TV, Melissa Bachman of Winchester Deadly Passion TV, and legendary bow hunter Barry Wenzel. Get your antlers scored, view more than 300 antler entries, and see the latest hunting products, plus a great lineup of lodges and outfitters. Learn more about the Minnesota Deer and Turkey Classic March 8th, 9th, and 10th at Canterbury Park in Shakopee at mndeerclassic.com. Well, one of our favorite things to do in the spring is go up to the Rainy River to fish, and we've got the big tournament coming up again this year, the SGR 500. It's the third annual, and it'll be the last Tuesday and Wednesday of the walleye season, so April 9th and 10th. We'll be basing out a riverbend. You can stay wherever you want, but we'll have a party there, be giving away prizes. We'll record this show in the restaurant there, and you can come join us and be part of the show as well. Find out more at sportingjournalradio.com. And we got a lot to get to before then, including uh, the rest of February and, of course, uh, March, which is always a good time up at Lake of the Woods. And to find out how things are, are going up there, Joe Henry joins us now from Lake of the Woods Tourism. Joe, how's it going? Hey, Brett. You know what? I'll tell you, I want to I wanna chat about ice fishing like you kind of let into, but I do want to mention I just picked up a couple of crankbaits with oh that boy. sporting journal radio 500 in mind i uh um, and the other the other question i have is it's a sporting journal radio 500 because we're celebrating your 500th show but now it shouldn't be like the sjr six something or i mean it certainly could be but sjr 500 is easier to remember okay. <laughs> so. we'll, we'll make it easy and you got a lot you got a lot on your plate yeah that's fine i mean i don't want to change the name of it every year it's but. like the daytona I, now yeah we do five hundred laps. You don't mind if I give a hard time once in a while, do you? I oh, hope you do. He expected put in his place a little bit more. <laughs> See how it is. You don't do it, poor Danny. The only time you can say anything is when I'm on the call. Yeah. Scene. Exactly. Oh, no. oh no, he says plenty when you're not here too. You just don't watch the show. Yeah. <laughs> no, is it, is it, the question I have is: Is it you still call him Danny, or you just kind of refer to him as Freddie now because of that uh, that mustache? <laughs> I'm getting used to it now. To to the listeners out there, if you're not watching this on YouTube or one of the different ways, I tell you, I would really encourage you to try to find the show online and and take a look because that mustache of Danny's, is there a way, is there a way can we focus just on Danny? Danny, put, put the camera, look at that thing. That isn't a thing of beauty. I had a dream the other night and this is, this is a sad dream I had that I was trying to trim, you know, and I like shaved it off. So I had to shave it off and start completely over. And I got kind of sad. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> look, just look straight into the camera once, Dan. Did, is like, it even like this? Like, did you, uh, I don't know. <laughs> doesn't it look like one side's a little, a little longer, a little longer and sticking out a little bit. No, I think I think the mustache is easy. I think this to be his face. I think yeah. <laughs> Maybe this side. I'm having a stroke. The side of my face is drooping Whoa. a little. You know, bit. If, if he has, if he has another couple bush lights, maybe he'll balance it out. <laughs> maybe well, it's your eyes. It could be. It just could be me. Maybe you're drunk. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Well, this week, Joe, um, we're actually going to be up at Lake of the Woods uh, this past. Well, this past week, we were up at Lake of the Woods at Riverbend, and we're going to be uh, bringing you more from that trip next week here on the podcast. But we were up there for an Aglow conference. Uh, you and I, or you've been a part of Aglow for a long time. I've been a part of it now for a number of years. Dan's a part of it. And we're bringing David up. for That's his, right. This is your first Aglow event, right? Yes. So you're a brand new Aglow member. How does it make you feel, David? So proud. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's an it's a neat organization. It's the Association of Great Lakes Outdoor Riders. And Joe, when people come up to you and say, "Hey, why should I be a part of this group?" What do you tell them? 
I'll tell you something. If you if you are an outdoor media person, where you're creating outdoor media um, in the industry at all, you know, I'll tell you what. A goal. It's it's not a very expensive membership, but boy, all of a sudden now you have access to a bunch of like-minded professionals from across the United States creating blogs, um, podcasts, writing articles for many different kind of publications, doing seminars, videos, television. Very, very professional people. And we're talking about things such as AI and digital marketing and uh, how to get more out of an article, how to repurpose content and when it's ethical to do so. And just a number of great topics on top of conferences where you go to really good outdoor destinations. Um, you know, we have this this mini camp coming out that, that just happened at Riverbend is a good example. It's not a full-blown conference, but it gives outdoor media an opportunity to go in a small environment, low cost, and experience ice fishing on Lake of the Woods if they haven't done so. Now, everybody that comes has an outlet, so they, they have a place to write it, whether it's a website or whether it's you know a, a newspaper or a magazine or a, whatever. They have a way to get it out there, right? And that's part of the win-win is that they're gonna come and they're gonna put some positive content out about Lake of the Woods area and Riverbend and things, but they also need content. They need a destination to go to that provides them the opportunities, and that's where Riverbend comes in. They they're providing the ice fishing and things. And I say I say that just because when when you get outdoor media, destinations, and outdoor companies together, really good things happen. And that's what we do with the Glow. And you know, for me at Lake of the Woods Tourism, we're constantly putting out. I mean, we put out a uh, we have a really good newsletter, very quality newsletter with a brand new fishing report three outdoor articles and an outdoors recipe every single week that we put out. So if you're not part of the Lake of the Woods tourism newsletter, jump on our, our website and subscribe. We have 134,000 followers on our Facebook page. You know, we certainly do Instagram and, and uh, um, YouTube as well. Um, you know, we're, we're, I'm, I'm constantly running articles. We do television shows up at Lake of the Woods about our destination, trying to educate about it. So we're, we're involved in outdoor media very much, Brett. And, yeah, this is just kind of a neat organization if you are a creator or an outdoor company or or, or, or a destination and you want to, you know, you have an outdoors uh, activities to promote. This is a, a goal could be a really nice uh, niche for you. And we have a, a little bit of fun. <laughs> oh, gosh, we have fun. Yeah. Even Freddie has fun at it. Well, <laughs> what is that supposed to mean? That I don't have fun other places? Boy, oh, Brett, he's sensitive. You know what's that? <laughs> you can't say it. What's that supposed to mean? So, obviously, Lake of the Woods is known for its extended season, Joe. So, uh, there's a lot of fishing yet to do up there, isn't there? There is a ton. And I'll tell you, it, it, Brett, every year it gets so confusing for, for visitors because if you turn on a Twin Cities news station or maybe you see a fishing report from uh, another lake, an inland lake in Minnesota, they're going to talk about how the season's winding down at the end of February. And up at Lake of the Woods, in fact, it is not winding down at the end of February. Our fish houses can be on the ice as we're border water with Canada. Our fish houses, our overnight fish houses, are allowed to be on the ice through March 31st. That's one whole extra month. And then in addition, our walleye and sauger season is extended through April 14th. Our pike season never closes. So, you know, uh, if you want to get some uh, February and March ice fishing in, it's some of the best darn months of the year. You got longer days. Our resorts have fish houses out. They're catering to people. It's just like it's game on. It's just that it's really the only game in town. And 
you know, it's not overly crowded. And I'll tell you why. It's because a lot of people get confused. They don't even know there's a season up north that they can fish walleyes that late, you know, because they get they, they turn the news on and they get misconstrued. So so anyway, if you want to get some really good ice fishing, and, and i got to tell you, this year, I mean, I've heard a lot of guides and resort owners talk about how this is one of the best ice fishing years they have had in in decades. I mean, they, they, they don't know if it's the best, but, boy, it's been a really, really good year overall. And, they, you know, I, I bet some of that could be attributed to a little bit of less fishing pressure. People have been unsure with hearing conflicting things and hearing, you know, because you look at other parts of the state down south and maybe conditions aren't the greatest, but conditions have been pretty consistent up there, haven't they? They have been very consistent. So why why are there more fish? I think certainly part of it could be, you know, there's many anglers out there and they're not picking away at them as much. But I think it's more than that. You know, we saw the basin starting to fill up over the summer with nice walleyes. And we knew this fall there was a really good bite off the south shore of Lake of the Woods, as an example. The, the angle has been good for years. That, that was never. It was just more that basin. I got a I got a hypothesis. Back in 2014, we had a, re, a, a 80 year rain event, and that just deluged Lake of the Woods. The Rainy River. There were logs and tree systems and everything else getting pushed into the lake. It was so much water was pushed through the lake up into Ontario. All of a sudden, our Northwest Angle guides up there were talking about how big of walleyes they were catching up on Ontario, which wasn't the norm. You normally catch those in the basin. I think that that big blast of water that pushed through pushed a lot of the forage up north. And it took about a year and a half for the basin to get back to normal. Well, you know, this the, the summer of 22, we just had record-breaking flooding on Lake of the Woods. A ton of water got pushed through that system. I, I kind of wonder if uh, the same thing didn't happen and now our basin is just getting back to normal. But I got to tell you, last winter at this time, you'd see people squawking online about, is Lake of the Woods getting overfished and where do these yeah. fish go and the lakes might be in trouble and, you know, the keyboard warriors, right? Well, you know what? I want to send them the fishing reports from this year because our fishing reports as a whole have been very good. And these aren't small fish. These aren't, you know, these are nice saugers and nice keeper walleyes. So, the lake is super healthy. We're catching those kind of fish all over the lake, which is promising. And we're only fishing a pittance of the lake. So I'm, I'm encouraged and uh, I hope others are too. Well, I'm excited um, to spend some time up there and spend, uh, spend some time at night. I saw somebody post, uh, I don't know, last week or so, there was a kid that wanted to go up and catch some burbots. So he stayed out in one of the sleepers and had a pretty good night out there. He did. He got a few nice, uh, yeah, I posted some of those uh, photos online on our Facebook page, but that's it, exactly what he did. He just went to a, he went to a, in a sleeper shack with his dad and they, you know, and when you go to a sleeper shack on Lake of the Woods, you know, our water is stained water, which is so advantageous for people to catch walleyes and saugers during the day because they'll actually bite during the day. Now, eel pout, they'll bite during the day. They'll also bite at night and you might get a walleye or two at night once in a while, you know, but but, but those eel pout, they'll bite all the time and they certainly uh, like biting at night. But they, they feed, you know, their eyesight isn't real good. They feed more on on uh, their their sense of vibration in the water and also their smell. So having a good uh, jigging spoon down there with a good couple dead frozen shiners on there, you know, and uh, that's usually the ticket. All right, Joe. Well, if people want to get up there, stay in a sleeper get into that extended season, maybe fish for pike late season or start thinking about the rainy river. What should they do for more info? You know what? Everything we have is on our website. That is lakeofthewoodsmn.com. Lake of the Woods, the walleye capital of the world, is calling out to you. From the northwest angle to the south shore and rainy river, this is the Midwest's number one ice fishing destination. Walleye, sauger, perch, northern pike, and eel power. 
the fishing on Lake of the Woods is like a world of its own. Experience the most amazing fishing through one of the many full-service resorts featuring heated fish houses, ice transportation, meal plans, and sleeper fish house options. For more information, go to lakeofthewoodsmn.com. Well, it's coming back again in Minnetonka. It's at the Minneapolis Marriott. It's the annual fundraiser and banquet for the Wild Sheep Foundation. This is a, this is a pretty neat time. Uh, I've gone many, many times to this banquet. It's great to go back and see some old friends. And they're really doing a lot for habitat and conservation there. There's a lot of money that gets spent on uh, wild sheep and the, and the habitat projects that these sheep need. And so much of that benefits other wildlife as well. And this year, they've got some cool new things taking place there, uh, big auction they're also going to be giving away a couple of statewide youth turkey tags as well so check it out the 2024 midwest chapter the wild sheep banquet and foundation the wild sheep foundation banquet and fundraiser march 15th and 16th at the minneapolis marriott southwest in minnetonka ice fishing season is here this winter plan a trip to devil's lake north dakota not only will you have the chance to catch their legendary perch, but this year, Haybell Heights has been catching big walleye after big walleye. And they're doing it from a mobile, comfortable snow bear. No matter how cold it is outside, you're warm and toasty on the inside. Learn more and book a trip today at haybellheights.com. That's haybellheights.com. Right, barrow trauma has become a big topic in uh, recent months here in the fishing world, I think, in general. And, and, and it's been a big topic for a long time for a number of biologists and anglers. Uh, a lot of guys that are fishing deep water or fishing in the, in the ocean, they've known about barrel trauma for a long time. But it's really starting to hit home in our neck of the woods when it comes to species such as uh, crappies and walleyes and uh, the anglers that go out there and target them in deep fish. And when uh, catch and release has gotten to be so popular... There needs to be a little bit more information out there about what we is catch and release actually benefiting some of these fish that are caught in deeper water. And we're finding out that maybe it's not. So uh, we're trying to learn more and more about it. We're reaching out to more and more people about it in different parts of the world. And Scott Mockentoon said, you got to have this guy on the show. Uh, so Stephen Cook, he's a professor of fishery science at Carleton University in Ottawa, joins us right now on the show. Uh, Stephen, how you doing? Hey, I'm great. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for being here. Um, ha have you been following what's been happening over here and, and the talk about barrel trauma a lot? Absolutely. It's impossible not to. Social media is blowing up and never thought barrel trauma would be uh, as popular as, uh, you know, things like uh, Taylor Swift. But such is <laughs> I'm not quite sure we're at uh, Swifty levels quite yet. But, uh, you know, maybe, maybe after this interview right now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, some people are still learning about barrel trauma. You know, I, I never really fished deep growing up. Most of the water that I fished in really wasn't that deep. So I never really had to deal with it too much until I started fishing for lake trout. And I started learning a little bit more about barrow trauma. And uh, lake trout are built a little bit differently than crappies and walleyes. So it's not quite the, the same discussion. But in Minnesota, particularly, there's been a... a, a there's been a lot of popularity in fishing crappies in deep basins, and obviously catch and release has gotten popular. So more and more people are about learning about are, are learning about barrow trauma, and it's, there's different opinions about it. Some guys say, "Well, if I do this, that'll they'll be okay." Well, if I do this, they'll be okay. Uh, and some people don't know what barrow trauma is at all. So any discussion about it, I think right now is good, but we need to get the right discussion the right answers out there and obviously we're there's a lot of research that's been ongoing we're still learning some things but 
We've known some things about barrel trauma for a long time, particularly probably guys like you that have been studying it for a while. You, you've known about barrel trauma for quite a while, I'm assuming. Absolutely. And it certainly was the marine world where it sort of first came to the, the fore. Uh, folks that were fishing off party boats in, in Florida, for example, catching uh, snapper and grouper from uh, really quite deep water, bringing them to the surface, putting them overboard. And birds were essentially whacking those animals before they had a chance to get back to depth. Now, in those cases, we were you know, oftentimes talking about 100, 150 feet of water, uh, so not surprising. And, and uh, maybe we should first mention and remind to folks what barotrauma is. And essentially, when fish are at depth, there is, is pressure, and the fish essentially become used to that pressure. And when they are brought to the surface quite rapidly, that pressure dissipates. And so a number of things happen to the animal. Um, most notably is any gases on board expand because that, that pressure is has been released. All of a sudden, the, the pressure is gone. And so things like the swim bladder uh, expand greatly. That can lead to stomach aversion where the stomach is pushed out. We see Popeye where the, the eyes can, can stick out a little bit. But there's a whole bunch of other things that happen to the animal that you can't see. For example, the formation of large bubbles in the blood uh, and the damage that happens to the internal organs when things like the swim bladder ex extend and expand to the, the extent that they do. And so uh, the general wisdom with barotrauma is A, avoid it. And if you can't avoid it, then B, do what you can to get those animals back in the water really quickly and back to depth. And that's where there's various uh, strategies and creative approaches that, that people have, have looked at. Yeah, and some of those things might be, say, descending devices or uh, I, I hear people talk of, about fizzing a lot. I, I can't imagine, and, and I, I haven't looked into a lot of studies. I haven't heard anything where it's actually benefited the fish other than getting it back down to depth. Is there any long-term research that's been done on some fish when it comes to, to fizzing or venting, I guess, uh, as far as survivability of barotrauma? Yeah, most of what we know is pretty short term uh, in the order of hours to a couple days. Uh, we, we certainly know that leaving a fish that is struggling on the surface in open water uh, will be taken out by predators, you know, birds will get them pretty quickly. So getting them back to depth is certainly, you know, giving them a fighting chance. Um, but it's also getting them back to the appropriate depth. So we have a study that we're just wrapping up right now with smallmouth bass, uh, where we fizz them and then release them over 30 feet of water, which is a very reasonable depth to fish for smallmouth, right? You know, you can imagine a, a point with smallies stacked up over it, sitting in 30 feet of water, even on the bottom. That's good smallmouth habitat. And then we release some over 100 plus feet of water. And the reason we did that is there's a movement away from using live release boats. So people are literally, the, the tournament uh, organizers after your fish are weighed, give you your fish back, you head out to the middle of the lake and release your fish where there's a lot of good water. And if those fish have been fizzed, uh, the assumption is that they'll be able to figure out where to be in the water column. But our work suggests they go right to the bottom. Uh, so they've essentially lost all capability to regulate buoyancy. And uh, I don't know about you, but I've never caught a smallmouth bass at 100 or 150 um, um, foot depth. 
and those animals are not in good shape. So we've sent down uh, ROVs to look at these fish, and they're just sitting on the bottom. Uh, we can't hover an ROV above them for a long period of time, but uh, in my professional judgment, those animals were, were toast. So, um, so fizzing can work. It does seem to get them back to depth. And days later, they do seem to be able to start to regulate buoyancy again, but not right off the bat. So if you're going to do it, make sure you uh, educate yourself. You look at the training materials, certainly for bass, black bass and walleye. There's lots of videos out there by scientists and uh, organizations that do a lot of fizzing. Uh, you can ask somebody, you know, at a tournament where there's professionals that, that fizz, uh, instead of just trying it yourself and turning the fish into a pin cushion, uh, yeah. getting somebody to, to demonstrate and, and show you how it works. Then it's effective. Uh, then I'm comfortable with it. But it, it's, it's something that, that does take some uh, proper technique and, and training. So based on that, you would say... Uh, maybe don't release them in a hundred feet of water as well too. If, yeah. if you're going to do that, go to, you know, maybe a 30 foot or less, something that's a little <laughs> bit more reasonable for where these fish would live normally. Exactly. And, you know, the, the idea of trying to prevent barotrauma in the first place, that's a tough one. Uh, you can be fishing top water and have a fish bust up from the bottom, 30 feet of water, a smallmouth will come clear up, grab a top water, and in its mind, it's going to go right back down. So it's at that those surface pressures for a matter of milliseconds. It wants to go back down, but of course, we keep it at the surface if that fish gets gets hooked on our, our top water. So, uh, so there are instances, even if you fish in shallow water, uh, there's potential to uh, experience fish and counter fish that that have barotrauma. So, uh, the idea of don't fish in deep water isn't in, entirely helpful, uh, given that fish are mobile and they move in that third dimension uh, very easily. Hmm. Well, we we'll just eat those bass then. We'll just, yeah. Sounds good. I love. <laughs> I mean, I mean, really, uh, that's uh, it. I think uh, that that's kind of been a big message for us. If you are going to fish deep, try to harvest those fish. I mean, not bass obviously isn't a uh, generally thought of as a as a harvest fish necessarily. Although I've eaten some good smallmouth bass. I'm not going to yep. lie. Um, oh yeah, largemouth, smallies uh, for sure. But so. I just want to go back to this for a second because this is kind of fascinating to me um, when it comes to like fizzing. So you've you've seen that some fish can actually heal and recover after being fizzed like that. Yep. And there's some work on walleye that suggests the same. So most of the work we've done uh, related to fizzing has been on smallmouth bass, but there's work done on walleye as well. It suggests that uh, after, uh, I can't keep the exact time point, you know, it's 12 hours, two days, whatever it is, but somewhere in that few day range, those animals are able to heal uh, to the point where they they are able to maintain buoyancy again. So when we, fizzing is essentially, you know, putting a small hole in the swim bladder. The idea isn't to pop it. It's not like a balloon where you, you know, put in the, the needle and it shatters inside uh, as a balloon might. Uh, the idea is to let some of the air out. And so uh, that's why we like to fizz in water so you can see the bubbles come out. And it's when they start to slowly come out more slowly. You don't want to go to the point where you wipe out every single 
um, every single bubble that's in there, get rid of every every little bit of air. Um, but at the same time, the work that we've done over deep water, even those fish where we're very careful and uh, only release a little bit of those air, the air, those fish do end up back on the bottom for a period of time. And if it's deep water, they, that seems to be the, the end of them. So... Uh, so fizz with care and be very conscientious of the type of water where you release those animals. If you're, you know, release them into the environments where if they end up having to sit on the bottom and sulk for a couple days, uh, that that is good bass habitat. So, uh, you know, I, a nice clean, uh, um, rocky bottom, uh, would be more preferable to, you know, some, you know, backwater bay with, two feet of silt on the bottom, uh, or alternatively, 100 feet of water. You want to avoid those two extremes. So I do just feel obligated to point out, because most of our audience is in Minnesota, that uh, regardless of the effectiveness of it, it's not legal to do in Minnesota. So I just, to all our Minnesota listeners, I want to throw that out there, that whether it works or not, it's uh, not a legal method of release in our state. For now, anyways, If it, I guess we could see that it's legal. Maybe that's something we... or. If we see that it's effective, effective. maybe it's something we push for. But uh, as of right now, not a legal practice. And broadly, it varies from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. It can also vary from species to species or context to to context. So, yeah, uh, certainly follow local guidance. So one of the issues that people have brought up with some of the studies that have been done here in Minnesota is the methodology being used. So when you are out there, say, let's talk about this fizzing study and you're you're observing fish on the bottom. Uh, you're seeing them a couple of days later recovering. What? How are you doing that? I know you mentioned the underwater ROV. What? How else? Like how are you? How do you know it's the same fish? Yeah. So first off, barotrauma is probably the biggest challenge within the catch and release space. Uh, and in terms of barotrauma under ice, you sort of double down and make yeah. it extra challenging. So um, the there's two ways in general we do catch and release studies. One is we catch a whole pile of fish and then we hold on to them for a few days. That can be done by bringing them into tanks, putting them in pens, holding them in in a, a, a vertical net, which is what the Minnesota DNR did in that first video, at least. Um, but as you can imagine, that's not entirely realistic. We've brought them into captivity. They're stressed with that. There's abrasion in the net. They're, you know, they're with a pile of other animals without food necessarily and, and the usual cover structure that they have. So there's an inherent stress built in. And then what we usually do is look at how they do, you know, how, how many are injured, uh, do they survive if they die? When do they die? And is there a way to figure out what was the, the cause of that death? For example, did all the fish that died, did they come from a certain depth or below a certain depth? Uh, were they hooked in a certain place like the esophagus? Uh, those kinds of, you know, were they air exposed for a particularly long uh, period of time? But what we need in science and what we try and use are controls. So the idea that uh, you have a group of animals that do not have barotrauma. Um, the, and, and ideally that weren't caught by rod and reel. Uh, and that's the real challenge with catch and release, getting controls. We can catch animals in other ways, for example, electrofishing, not in the winter, but in the, in the open water periods. Um, but electrofishing is it, can it in and of itself, uh, also be harmful to fish in certain contexts. So we're always, we have to 
sort of catch fish to be able to assess how well they're doing. Um, but at the same time, we know whatever gear, whatever method we use will cause some level of injury, will cause some level of stress, and that will potentially affect their behavior and even their survival. So um, when we release fish, and that's the alternative way, is we release fish back into the wild and we track them. The challenge, of course, is to track them, we usually have to tag them in some way. And so the example that I gave where um, we were looking at fish that were released in really deep water versus a smallmouth released in really deep water versus 30 feet that had been fizzed, hadn't been fizzed, that kind of thing. What we did was we put a Velcro strap around the body with functionally a Fitbit on it. So it measured water temperature, depth, and acceleration, just like your your watch or your, your phone would or your Fitbit. And so we can tell how active the fish is. That Velcro strap is attached to fishing line and we let it free spool and that fish does its own thing. And after a period of time, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, half an hour, whatever we decide, we basically reel in the slack, give it a tug, that opens up the Velcro strap, we reel in the Fitbit, and record, and then we can download the data. That's one way to do it. Um, obviously, most fish don't swim around with a Velcro strap. Are we affecting its behavior in some way? Undoubtedly. We can also put electronic tags in fish, but then we have to do surgery, which means then we have to put them to sleep. And then if you're releasing a fish, what you're tracking is a fish that's that's either high or frankly hung over because it's impaired from the from the anesthetic. So that's not a great method. So uh, people are trying to do other things. You saw in the uh, one, I think it was the uncut angling uh, video where they were using uh, forward facing sonar to, uh, to track at least the animal just getting down to the bottom. Uh, we've used ROVs to validate some of what we've seen. So put eyes on the fish so we don't have to just trust our electronic tags. But within fishery science, there's so many challenges and biases and limitations. And that's something that if one isn't a scientist and reads the papers or watches a video, one might say, whoa, what about this or what about that? But the part of a paper that every scientist goes to first is the limitation section. Because the people that do the science, the scientists themselves, know more about the limitations than any reader ever, ever will. So uh, we do a pretty good job talking about the limitations and what those limitations mean in terms of how those data should be extrapolated and the extent to which they should or shouldn't be used in other contexts. So the, the uh, uh, initial uh, Minnesota DNR study, uh, clearly the context there was for fish that had been held at the surface for a period of time. It wasn't a rapid release scenario. So uh, in many ways, I think they documented worst case scenario for the depths that they studied. And so an obvious question is, well, what if you eliminate air exposure or get the fish back in the water in 10 seconds? So that's sort of how science works. It's this stepwise process where uh, technology advances, creates new opportunities, uh, where we identify what those limitations are with previous studies and we redo them and we keep doing that. And as we do that, the burden of evidence accumulates 
the stack of papers that collectively say, you know, A is good and B is bad. And then eventually that's the kind of, of evidence that managers will look at when trying to make decisions. It's rarely one study or one paper. Uh, I wish I could be that effective with the work we do. <laughs> You know, I, I write papers like crazy and I can point to a handful of examples of where there have been any regulatory changes in any meaningful timescales. Um, so it's really about education. That's why when we do our work, we try to share it through forums like this, through social media, uh, getting our faces in front of fishing clubs and, and, and sharing what we've learned because education is way easier, it's less expensive, and oftentimes more effective than regulation. There's been a lot of discussion about this from armchair quarterbacks or social media, keyboard warriors, <clears throat> whatever you want to call them. And, and I, I think for the most part, people are, are well-meaning because they're all anglers and they want to they go catch fish and they want to catch fish for the rest of their lives. But they're, they're, what you just described, a lot of people try to take issue with. Oh, well, if it's, if it's not a uh, final study, then why is it out there in the public? And then when researchers, biologists do a study and then it's not out there in the public, they're like, well, why didn't we know about this? Why isn't there transparency in, in the research? Do you find that it's hard to get anglers to, tr to trust the, the process I'm sorry, the process for you Canadians. <laughs> Do you find that sometimes there's there's a lack of trust there with some of the research that's going on? Absolutely, and it can go with managers as well. Sometimes managers are involved in the study, but there's much of the science that's done, it's, it's scientists that do it, and then we try to feed that to managers. And so what we know is that research that tends to be embraced by fisheries managers is work that's relevant to them. So, you know, do science that they actually care about, but also it needs to be done in a way that's realistic and relevant to a context. And that's where the anglers can come in, where anglers can say, and, and, and that's why fisheries scientists try to spend time, at least I do, uh, with other anglers, I'm an angler myself, but with non-scientist anglers to understand the issues, the challenges. How are they doing things so that we can bring that realism to the work that we're doing? And so I think that, you know, one of the things I like about these conversations is it emphasizes the importance of the angling community, scientists and fisheries managers working in, in collaboratively, in partnership to do science that is relevant. We've heard the term bad science being thrown around. Nothing that has been done here is bad science. It's science that has to be interpreted or understood in a specific context. And that's just, that's just how it is. Bad science is science that is fudged, that is um, that is uh, lacks any thought about uh, experimental design and so on. One might criticize this, the work that's been done and say, well, it lacks realism. That doesn't make it bit bad. That just means that when interpreting it, it needs to be done in the context in which it, 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 the science, uh, the experimental design. Um, and sometimes it's really valuable to know what that worst case scenario is. Uh, and then you can work backwards from there and say, okay, where are the thresholds? How much time at the surface is too much? Uh, and 
we tend not to regulate those kinds of things. There's not many places where there's a regulation that says, you know, you know, you can't hold it down with the water for more than 30 seconds. Instead, we educate again. And so uh, at the end of the day, I know there seems to be a lot of fear about regulations on everything from uh, from fishing at depth to using uh, forward facing sonar. And uh, I, I think what the, the goal for most agencies is to uh, use that education toolbox uh, and leave the regulation side to the a last resort. Yeah, and I, <clears throat> nobody wants to see more rules and regulations, I don't think. Um, you know, personally, we don't either. And we try to push the education angle. We just want to learn more about these things. And uh, Minnesota DNR has been really good in the, in the past few years about trying to include uh, more citizen anglers and, and hunters, uh, you know, and stakeholders out there in, in their management decisions. There's been some panfish work groups for a number of years. In fact, it was citizen anglers that wanted the study on barotrauma to be brought to light. There's a lot of people that don't realize how involved citizens, citizen anglers have been in, in this process. And then uh, Wisconsin DNR actually has started to include anglers on uh, the St. Croix River for some of their sturgeon research. So they're starting to do a lot more with citizens out there. I, I worry a little bit about, you know, the, you know, because citizens generally don't use controls necessarily, but it's important to get real life applications in some of the in some of the management decisions, obviously. And that's I did notice that when I was reading your bio uh, that you talk about. Let me see here. Or we are particularly interested in how human activities influence aquatic animals with a focus on solutions. And when I talk, I think it was maybe Dave Weitzel from the Minnesota DNR that we had on recently. And they they say they they manage the fisheries here in Minnesota not just based on you know growing the most number of fish but or the biggest fish but on how anglers want the fishery to be you know do they want to be able to catch a lot of eater fish out of this lake do they use it in this way so let's manage it best for the anglers out there uh, obviously with the species best interests in mind they're not they don't want to just you know destroy a fishery uh, and for the basis of anglers but that's a big part of, of how these decisions are made are, are how humans are using these things so I think it's important to have research I think it's interesting that your research involves human activities and what effect they're having on these fish yeah you know people are the cause of most conservation problems and they're also the solution to most conservation problems sometimes i wonder if instead of getting a degree in fisheries science i would have been more effective as a as a fishery scientist if i did a degree in behavioral psychology uh trying to help nudge people towards making good decisions about how they interact with individual fish and with our natural resources so one of the things uh, when it comes to barotrauma that you were a part of, one of the studies, I guess, uh, involved bluegills and black crappies. Can you talk about that a little bit, what you learned? Yeah, so uh, remember all the details here. I'll do my best. You probably have more at your fingertips there. <laughs> uh, so uh, this is work that was done under the ice. Uh, animals were captured. Some of that work was done uh, on the surface. Uh, I think those some of those animals were um, uh, held at surface and put in behavioral arenas uh, with a video camera so we could look at their behavior uh, after various interventions. And then we use those same uh, uh, Fitbit straps that we put on the on okay. uh, on them and release them and just track them for short periods of, of time. And that was under ice. 
Um, but you know, by and large, across the barotrauma studies that we do, shallower the fish, te- you know, fish that are caught shallower tend to be in better condition than fish that are caught deeper. And fish that get back in the water more quickly tend to be in better shape than those animals are held out for a longer period of time. And if it's an animal that is struggling to get to the bottom, anything you can do to help it get there, whether that be fizzing, whether that be using descending devices, which range, and there's tons of, uh, you know, everything from things you can make in your garage to uh, fancy devices that you can buy at the, the tackle shop, uh, but trying to get help those animals get back to, to depth. We could talk about some of these other things uh, when it comes to psychology, like anglers' perceptions versus reality, um, which could which we could probably get really deep into the weeds on that one. But I want to talk, you, you did a some research on hook avoidance in carp, which I thought was kind of interesting. And I only have access to a little bit of the info, so I don't get to see everything that you, that you learned about it, but you, so you caught carp and then studied to see how long it would take for them to want to get caught again, essentially. Yeah. This is work that was done in Germany, but it's, it fits into a, a bigger set of, of studies that we've done that, really are trying to look at the extent to which fish can learn uh, about the, uh, remember, frankly, that they've been caught and then make decisions. It makes them harder to catch, catchability. Uh, And so we've done work with uh, Atlantic salmon, with largemouth bass, and with carp. And uh, I can tell you with certainty, they do remember but the time in which how long they retain that information uh, seems to be somewhat limited. So with bass, work we've done shows that it's far easier to um, a fit, uh, if we catch a bass and sometimes we do experiments on nesting bass, which may or may not be legal, depending on where you're based. Uh, but if we catch a bass off the nest with a black plastic worm, if we go back and subsequently try in that same season to try and catch that fish with a black plastic worm, it's almost impossible, but we could throw a floating rapala or a white jig in the nest and no problem. It will hit that. If we come back the subsequent year, so a year later, and we we can uh, there's a strong nest site fidelity, so they come back to more or less the same nest site, uh, same sized fish, or hopefully they've grown a little bit. Uh, and then we throw the same things or different things at those animals, and we see that it doesn't matter. So that black worm will catch that smallmouth bass on the first cast usually. So somewhere between you know a couple weeks and a year they forget about the black plastic worm being something that that contributed to my uh, alien temporary alien abduction uh, by a, by an angler <laughs> um, with uh, with Atlantic salmon uh, it seems to be within a spawning run so for example they will Atlantic salmon this was work we did in Norway uh, they are much more like so the Atlantic salmon there get caught many times over the course of a season. And what we learned was that, uh, and anglers have to report their catches and many of them are tagged. So we know that, you know, fish X was caught, you know, on, you know, August 3rd on a fly, on August 12th on a MEP spinner, and then on a, a, a plug of some sort in early September. And what we see is that, uh, almost never were the fish caught on 
the same lure in subsequent captures or within the same season. So you could catch them once per year on a fly, but you're unlikely to catch them again within that year in a fly. But give them a year to go back to the, uh, reproduce, go back to the ocean and come back to spawn again. And all of a sudden you can catch them on a fly again. So uh, carp, which the study you you, um, uh, you decided to point at, carp are weirdos. Carp seem to remember <laughs> a lot more, uh, and I don't want to give carp too much credit, but unfortunately, <laughs> uh, they seem to be uh, unique among fish that have been studied in terms of having pretty darn good memories uh, when it comes to uh, capture events. So uh, much more difficult to capture um, so, you know, if you're using corn one day uh, and not catching anything, you probably want to try boilies or bread uh, or dough balls the, the next. Uh, they seem to, to, to definitely uh, learn and remember and, and hold on to that uh, information for much longer than, uh, than bass or Atlantic salmon, which are the those are probably the only three species in which we have sufficient data to know about how th- that that level of repeat catchability. Yeah, how did how are you able to track the carp to know that that's the same fish? Yeah, again, that was done in a uh, at a lab, but in ponds. There were experimental ponds uh, in Germany, uh, and so a lot of those fish had uh, pit tags in them, uh, so that the same bar co- uh, um, passive t- tiny tags are in the back of the neck of your cat or dog uh, that they just scan. So, uh, and then sometimes we use these little external marker tags that just have a, a, a little number on them. So, yeah. One other thing that's come out of this barotrauma discussion is fish handling methods. And, uh, I will say the DNR this year, they, they did a couple of different studies as part of their barotrauma research. And one of them, including just the most minimal amount of fish handling possible, getting that fish caught, getting it dropped back down and then following with multiple forward facing sonars to try to track it as long as possible. And then they came back the next day with a, with an underwater drone and uh, tried to see how many were pinned up against the ice that have floated up to the surface. It was pretty interesting. So they, tr- they tried to do an, uh, a few different methods to change up some of the controls and the methodology used. Um, what have you learned about fish handling and using different hooks when it comes to reducing, uh, like hooking mortality on these fish? Yeah. The single biggest thing that determines whether or not a fish will survive a catch and release event is where it is hooked. So, um, and not surprisingly, places that are, are relatively bad for a fish are in the gullet or throat or esophagus, whatever you want to call it. So anything you can do to encourage or enable hooking in those more shallow regions like the the jaw uh the the um, upper and lower uh uh mandibles that area that's the uh the areas where you know there there's very few blood vessels uh you're not going to affect their ability to respire uh and and so on and so then that begs the question what leads to deep hooking um deep hooking uh is more common in novices than experts I've got kids and, you know, the bobber will be, you know, halfway to the bottom of the lake before they realize that there's a fish on there. Um, Of course, using live or organic type baits, because they are a potential food item, they tend to be taken more deeply. Um, Smaller baits, so for a given sized fish, a small bait like a, a... you know, just a, a, a tiny spoon can be inhaled much more deeply by a pike than 
a massive, you know, then a, a, a nine inch um, uh, crankbait. So even though a big bait might look more ominous with more hooks and so on, that hook, it's highly unlikely you're going to deeply hook a fish with that in, in the gullet. So um, so things like that, anything that reduces uh, deep hooking. Hook type matters somewhat. Uh, if you're fishing with live or organic baits, you can trade up your hooks, your traditional J-style hooks uh, for a circle hook, which I'm looking, sometimes I have a prop around here. Let me have a peek. My yeah, my brother pulling up. Yeah, one more drawer to the check. <laughs> No, you're supposed, to come, pre- you're supposed yeah. to come prepared with props. Come on. So a circle hook looks more like the letter C. And so if so it's yeah, thank you. It's much more uh, much more difficult for a circle hook to catch a fish uh, in the gullet. So, um, of course, there's, again, context matters. There's different kinds of circle hooks. So in the image there, it showed one that was offset where the point was uh, offset from the shank. And an offset circle hook behaves the same way as a J hook. So uh, so we're looking for non-offset circle hooks. So you see the, the X through the, the two that, that are injurious if a fish is deeply hooked uh, or, or lead to more deep hooking, whereas the circle hooks, um, even if a fish tries to take it deeply, it tends to just come out of the gullet and end up hook, hooking around the, the jaw. So uh, things like hook types matter not so much with an actively fished bait or lure. So if you're reeling something in or trolling, uh, circle hooks are not very effective. You will catch very few fish um, just the way that they work. But uh, um, you also get relatively little deep hooking when you do that. So um, I try to avoid fishing with small organic baits. And when I'm fishing with my kids, I almost always use, always use circle hooks. Uh, in an, it's also safer. It's really hard to hook yourself with a circle hook. So uh, it's good when you've got kids uh, flailing around you. Yeah. You know, and so we do a lot of stuff up, up in Saskatchewan on a kind of a remote fishing camp up there and we go all barbless. It's not a, it's not a province mandate or anything like that, but it's kind of a camp mandate. And a lot of it just is <laughs> for safety for the guides and for the anglers and, uh, and also for the fish of course too. But uh, there's been a couple of moments where I was pretty glad we didn't have barbs on those, <laughs> on those yeah. hooks. Yeah. And interestingly, a barb has no bearing on whether or not a fish is hooked in the gullet or hooked in the jaw. Of course, it makes it easier to get out, but it really is, if a fish is hooked in the gullet, all the science that's been done across a variety of marine and freshwater fish says that fish is far better off if you cut the line Mm -hmm. than try to remove that hook. Even if it's a single barbless J hook and it's in the gullet, when you start start um, uh, farting around in there, you're essentially dragging a very uh, sharp point around pretty delicate tissue. So the heart uh, and the liver uh, are are on that uh, uh, ventral surface uh, just underneath the the gullet there. So uh, we try to encourage people just to cut the hook, uh, cut the line. They will get rid of that hook 
um, in, in most instances very quickly. And all the survival studies we've done up to 10 days suggest that uh, your mortality rates are about two to three times higher if you try and remove the hook than if you let a deeply hooked fish go with a hook left in the throat. So mm. cut the line if they're deeply hooked. So in other words, barbless hooks will save you a second or two, but you really should only be using them to get, you're already use, removing them from a fish that's hooked in the jaw usually. Yeah. So yeah, it, it's not going to make the difference usually as to whether a fish lives or dies. In fact, barbless hook regulations for trout, small trout are an interesting example of where there was a lot of pressure from angling groups to do it. But from a management perspective, there's little evidence that barbless hooks actually uh, reduce mortality uh, and therefore benefit the population in that way. But it would it would reduce handling time. You'd you'd assume. It would, but but that none of the work has shown that that then translates or that time savings then translates to uh, reductions in mortality. I think that might matter more and more in the future uh, as we're fishing in warmer waters. So uh, in a climate change context where every second might matter between allowing us to continue to fish uh, versus closing rivers seasonally uh, when water temperatures get too high. So I think we have to up our handling game uh, in a climate change context. Uh, so I am an advocate for barbless hooks, uh, especially for things like small salmonids, but it, it's questionable as to whether or not there's a direct link to uh, reducing mortality. That's interesting. Um, all right. Well, I want to just hit on a couple of quick things uh, that are related to that. Um, when it comes to barrel trauma, a lot of discussion has has been out there about reeling up slowly. And when it comes, to, I can never remember which one is which. The psychostomus, psychoclistus, phizostomus, os. Uh, is with an O, so open. So that's how I think of that. Physostomus is one that has that opening between. Uh, and then physoclistus, CL, I use in my head to think of closed. So <laughs> so a, uh, so in case people don't know what we're talking about, so uh, a lake trout has a direct, functionally a pneumatic duct between the swim bladder and its its esophagus or mouth so it's able to basically burp and get out that air so in, instead of having that that same level of swim bladder expansion for fish perkids centrarchids so your yellow perch your black crappie things like that walleye they are phys uh, physoclistus meaning that there is no direct connection and they have to use physiology to move those blood gases out, or move those gases out of the uh, out of the swim bladder into the blood, and and then uh, essentially off gas that way. So it's a much longer process. So um, bringing up a physoclistus fish more slowly probably doesn't do a whole lot, uh, but a physostomus fish like a lake trout, it gives them time to burp. Expel and expel those gases from function. It looks like burping. It's not really burping because it's not their stomach, but get rid of those gases out of their swim bladder. 
It also sounds like burping. <laughs> uh, first time I saw that, I laughed pretty hard, actually, because I'm 12. But uh, yeah, so that I mean, that's interesting. You know, we so we fish for a lot of lake trout and occasionally it's uh, we're fishing deep. And so we've tried to make it a, um, you know, kind of we've been a proponent of reeling up slowly and watching for air bubbles as as the fish comes up. You know, we hit certain levels and we usually stop and try to let a let it expel some gases if we can. And then I've I've heard from numerous people that say they try to do that with crappies and walleyes, but it doesn't, that's not going to help those fish. Right. That's I mean, not that's, the time frame at which that those physiological processes play out. Uh, it's, it's much longer. So uh, it, it, yeah, it not, not super helpful other than, you know, it, there may be less internal trauma giving time for that swim bladder to that pressure to be released in the swim bladder to grow more slowly instead of if you horse it to the surface all of a sudden it goes from being you know a swim bladder looks like a condom basically um and when they're at depth that it looks like a, a, a you know an entirely empty condom and when it comes to the surface it's like you've tied the end off and it's it's you know a, a very inflated balloon and you can imagine it fills very quickly when the animal is brought to the surface quite quickly so there might be somewhat less trauma to the innards to bring things up slowly, but there's no scientific evidence of that. That's just me musing. Yeah. So, um, yeah, there, there's, there's no science that I'm aware of that suggests that bringing a physoclistus fish, such as a crappie or a walleye up more slowly is, 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 uh, less harmful. And then, in, so continuing just kind of that thought, I mean, how slow, I mean, I obviously it would be depth dependent and, and fish dependent. You can't say it's going to be consistent every time, but I mean, how slow, like in your mind, if you were out there catching walleyes or crappies in 35 feet of water and you say, I'm going to try to reel this one up slowly, um, how slow are you going to go to think it actually might make a difference? Yeah, I, I don't know. And I think I'd be more likely to, you know, you have to trade that off with, getting it to the surface as quickly as possible, seeing whether it's a fish you intend to harvest or not, and if yeah. not, getting it back down as quickly as possible. So, um, the again, the swim bladder inflation is, is but one of many uh, things that's happening to that fish, and much of it you can't see unless you have a scanning electric, electron microscope with you in the uh, the field. And they only cost a couple hundred thousand dollars, so <laughs> probably not so you're going to bring on the bring on the ice. So, uh, in general, you know, just be, be ready, you know, is, you know, if, if you're dealing with a length limit, is the fish, uh, an appropriate size, you have your pliers at the ready so you can get that fish back. Um, and then just getting the animal back in the water. Um, you did see on some videos, uh, some attempt to fill the mouth of the crappie with water before you sort of head them, put them, point them downwards. Uh, there's no benefit of that. Uh, fish have gills and a percula. And if you put the fish head down, all the, all the gas, the gases, the, the air that are in its, in its buccal cavity, in its mouth will come out through the gills. So that you don't, you can skip that step and just get those animals back in the water on their way. Uh, I want to just touch on fizzing real quick to, um, for people that, you know, if it's legal where they're at, and obviously you said to to research at first, there are some preferred methods, I'd assume, but, uh, you know, over the years, I've heard of people when they see the stomach pushed out through the mouth, they're just poking a hole in it and throwing the fish back. That's not what you're, when you talk about fizzing and doing it the proper method, that's not what you're talking about. 
cracked. When you're seeing the stomach out the mouth, the stomach isn't what you want to pop, uh, or and it's not pop, you know, release gas from. It's the uh, it's the swim bladder, and so uh, there are landmarks that are used. Um, so depending on the species, it's different for smallmouth bass versus largemouth bass, even. But there's landmarks where you line things up with different fins. And relative to the lateral line, which influences where you go in. Uh, and uh, you use a fairly small gauge needle, again, so that the bubbles come out in a controlled manner. And uh, usually you make sure you have something. Sometimes the needle can get jammed with fish tissue. So you have to have something to clean the inside of your needle. Um, we suggest cleaning them between uses so that you're not uh, moving uh, any pathogens from fish to fish. Uh, and uh, yeah, but it's, you know, once you're good at it, it's, it's, it's really quite effective. But if you're not good at it, you will cause damage to internal organs. And some of those would be, uh, you know, could lead to, uh, to death. So before we let you go, uh, I want to just touch on a couple of things that I found under your name there on that website. And it's the hundred most pressing research questions for recreational fisheries, and then learning from the last 30 years to inform the next 30, which I'd assume they're, they're, they're somewhat related. What would you say is important for us to maintain sustainable fisheries for the future? Yeah. It's kind of a broad uh, question, but yeah. Yeah. Um, at the core to, to where fisheries is going, it's about partnerships and people. That certainly is a big part of it. Working collaboratively, realizing that uh, there are ways to involve the, fi the fishing community uh, in science. And I'm not suggesting that means anglers doing their own science, but instead working in partnership uh, and supporting those, but also creating pathways for anglers to be involved in management decisions. And you gave some great examples. Uh, and I sit on a local fisheries management council and, and, and as, as a, an angler and scientist, uh, but there's all, you know, there's fishing guides and resort owners and, and multi-species anglers and so on. Um, I think a, another theme is certainly technology and thinking about how technology can be, uh, can be embraced by recreational fisheries managers um, to improve how they do things. And you're seeing examples of how uh, I understand in this most recent iteration of the Minnesota DNR survey, they're, they're using survey, uh, uh, the, the front forward facing sonar, uh, also using ROVs. Um, we do have to keep our eye on technology, of course, uh, and make sure that it's not being used in, in ways that are entirely ridiculous. Uh, there are, there are, uh, drones are being used for fishing these days, uh, mostly just for a, a fun YouTube video, but, uh, <laughs> yeah. in, in, uh, offshore areas uh, in, um, uh, uh, South Africa, for example, uh, they're using aerial drones to when surf fishing to take their baits out past areas where they normally couldn't cast. And all of a sudden they're able to reach fish that were previously unfishable. And I think my only concern with forward facing sonar is that there are fish that were hidden from us. And I'm thinking about, for example, the roving schools of smallmouth bass that are in the middle of a lake that you would have never tried to target before because it was a needle in a haystack. Only, you know, if you got totally lucky, would you do that? And now people are winning tournaments by doing nothing but that. And those are fish that before we really didn't know about. They were, or they were basically 
unfindable and therefore uncatchable unless you got lucky. And so I think that some of the technology means that there really is no place for fish to hide. Um, I don't know what that means, but I kind of like the idea that there are hiding spaces, you know, that there are some fish that are unreachable. And that's our insurance policy when we don't get it right with management. And fisheries management is bloody challenging. Uh, and, uh, uh, and we do get it wrong. And so having a little bit of insurance policy isn't a bad thing. So those are some of the things I, I think about. And to be clear, I'm not advocating for regulating forward-facing sonar, but those are some of the discussions that we need to have with these emerging tools and techniques, lures that flash and have lights and sounds and, you know, what what is too much? Uh, and I think a lot of the, we're going to start to see in tournaments, I think, some more regulations, rules around these things. Uh, it'll, be in, it'll be an interesting uh, decade, I think. Yeah, that live scope, uh, I love it. I, I I would hate to see it banned because it's so much fun to use and you learn so much about fish behavior and structure yeah. and how they relate to structure, how they react to baits, things like that. Uh, people argue that it, it makes you a lazy angler uh, or you're learning something in a short period of time that other anglers have, have gathered over years and years of time on the water. So I can understand the old timers being upset about it because uh, it's a, it's a shortcut in a lot of ways, but it's so much fun. And I, you know, I don't call it the magic fish catcher, of course, but it definitely helps you find fish that you wouldn't have known were there, especially those suspenders out in deeper water, things like that, that are roaming around the basins. Uh, and that's been, you know, and that's ultimately what Jeremy Smith's concern was in that angling buzz video is like, Hey, just know what you're doing to these fish. Understand the pressure you're putting on these fisheries. And some people that took exception to that don't live where Jeremy does and where Minnesota anglers are and the amount of fishing pressure we have on our lakes here, uh, especially when there's a hot bite or a new way to find fish, I guarantee you there's next day, there's gonna be people sitting on top of that hole or there's gonna be people utilizing that method. And it puts a lot of pressure on the fisheries. So. Ultimately, we just want to see these fisheries sustainable. And I'm part of a work group, the DNR here. They don't want to ban the technology, but they want to understand how the technology is being used and what effect it's having on the fish. So they've asked citizens and stakeholders like myself, Jeremy is on it as well. And we're out there working with the DNR just to learn about it and just to try to educate people on, on what effect you may be having on the fishery. We all want to catch fish for a long time, I think. That's the, that's the ultimate goal. Uh, in Absolutely. reality. So, yep. Uh, yep. Uh, all right, Stephen, anything else you want to mention or anything else you want to talk about that should be important for our, our viewers and listeners? Yeah, lots to talk about, but we're going to have to pick it up another time. <laughs> yeah. I got a, <laughs> I got a one o'clock meeting coming up here that I got to jump on. To. All right, we'll let yeah. you go. This was really great. I really appreciate you coming on. I'd love to have you on again. Uh, Stephen Cook from, from Ottawa, professor of fisheries science, Carleton University in Ottawa. Thanks for the time today on the show. Take care. Tight lines. Sporting Journal Radio is a division of Macaba LLC. If you've got a question, comment, or story idea for us, send us an email. Go to sportingjournalradio.com. While you're there, you can learn how to advertise on the show and visit our store for hats, hoodies, coffee mugs, and more. Go to sportingjournalradio.com.